0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory: Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. If you've been with us the past few weeks, we are going verse by verse through the book of Exodus. We've been doing that for several weeks now, maybe even several months, and One thing I know is as we've studied these plagues over these last few weeks, you are probably, if you're like me at all, you're probably a little bit fed up with the plagues, right? All right, on to something else now. Uh, I know, honestly, when I sat down to study the text and to write the sermon, I thought, oh my goodness, I am so tired of these plagues. And I'm so tired of Pharaoh. He's such an idiot. That's literally what I was thinking. I'm like, this guy is such an idiot, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 are all almost identical in their flow and in the content, right? God speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can worship me. Pharaoh says, I don't think so. God uses Moses and Aaron to strike Egypt and Pharaoh with a sign showing his omnipotency over all the false gods of Egypt. Then Pharaoh begs, Moses to call off the plague, and the whole dance starts all over again in the next chapter. This, the phrase, beating a dead horse, comes to mind. But as a true eyewitness retelling of actual events, each plague has had something unique to show us. And this morning, it's interesting, or this week, as I'm reading this text, my response to Pharaoh showed me how much like Pharaoh I actually am. And I think possibly we all might discover this morning how much like Pharaoh we actually are. Now listen, that's funny because we look at him and go, idiot, what are you doing? How stupid are you? How hard-hearted are you? How ignorant are you? Now listen, this is, this is from, you're gonna hear a lot from C.S. Lewis today. This is uh, a quote from, C.S. Lewis, he says this There is one vice of which no man in the world is free or woman, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular. And no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Huh. How interesting. Something that just absolutely, we see it in other people and we go, oh, that's disgusting. But something that we are more, we're we're guilty of ourselves. We actually have it. And the more we have it ourselves, the more it causes us to go sick, gross. I can't stand that. I can't believe they do that. What is this sin? Well, we're going to find out. What is this thing in our heart? I think we're going to find out this morning. It's going to be interesting. The same thing that caused me to look at Pharaoh and go, this guy is possibly, it is in my heart. It's there. It's present. It's breeding. And it might be in your heart as well. So we're going to see that this morning. But we're also going to see how kind of all the plagues, the plagues as a whole, teach us something as well. Think about this. Why didn't God just break Pharaoh's will just with one plague, right? Like just, just with the first plague, like river of blood, bam, Pharaoh repents, right? God relents. Pharaoh goes back to normal. God's like river of blood again. Just every time he goes back, river of blood forever, river of blood. Why didn't he just drown him out? right? Just make, just break his will, just stop him, or better yet, just take him out. Go, really? Cardiac arrest, right? Pharaoh's gone. All right, Moses, why don't you just take his place? Why did God do this, the exodus, the way that he did it? If the goal, think about this, if the goal was to get God's people from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land, Why didn't he just jump to the final plague? See, and I think many of us, we see our exodus. We see the way God works in our lives today. We see the salvation story that we're a part of, and we kind of think of it like that. God's goal is to get me from point A to point B. He's to to get me from here to heaven. The quickest way possible. But that's not what we see in exodus Exodus is teaching us, hear this, there's nothing about the way God rescues his people that is efficient, economical, painless, or easy. They've been enslaved literally for hundreds of years. Moses was trained for 40 years in the house of Pharaoh. Then he spent another 40 years trained in obscurity. And now God seems to be taking his sweet time and playing some kind of game. With Pharaoh. In fact, in verse two, and this is—I'm going to preach this a little different. I'm not going to run through verse by verse this time, because we're probably so used to the pattern. But I'm still going to preach specifically from the text this morning. And I just don't think I have time this morning to do that. Um, But I'm going to bring some things out of the text in verse two, where God says, "This I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians." Scholar and commentator Philip Rikens says this, a more literal translation is, I have made sport of the Egyptians. I have made, think of it like a cat playing with a mouse. We all know the end is inevitable. But he's playing. Now why? See, God is, he's making sport of the Egyptians. He's running up the score on the Egyptians. He's keeping his starters in, even though he's already up by 50 points in the second quarter. This is about more than just winning the game. God is trying to make a point. He has something to prove. And it's important for us to see the point that God is trying to make here. And for God to make his point, Pharaoh has to stay in the fight. If God knocks Pharaoh out in one punch, the point is not made. God keeps on Hardening Pharaoh's heart because he wants to make a point out of Pharaoh and out of Egypt. Look at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. So God's saying, I'm hardening Pharaoh's heart because I have a point to prove. But look what else he says. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son. And of your grandson, how I have dealt harshly or made sport of the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord and there is no other. Now, this, this is controversial a little bit. This pushes back against us. If you were here last week, I thought Sam did a great job talking about the doctrine election where God says here, I have hardened his heart. Now, many people shy away from this, but scripture is clear. God says that he personally hardened Pharaoh's heart. But then our reaction, one might say, would be, then it isn't Pharaoh's fault. If God hardened Pharaoh's fault, then it isn't Pharaoh's fault. What can man, how can man resist the will of God? If God hardened Pharaoh's heart, then Pharaoh didn't have a choice. But that would be taking things too far. Because Exodus also tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. See, Moses, as he's writing this, he has no problem. And he sees no contradiction between these two realities. So if you ever hear someone say something like this, well, if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, then Pharaoh was basically a robot and our choices don't matter. And Pharaoh didn't have a choice in the matter. Now, listen, that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the doc, you know, Calvinism teaches. That is a straw man argument against Calvinism, but that's not what it teaches. And that nor is it what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that God is absolutely sovereign over salvation over all things that he softens who he wills and he hardens who he wills. But the Bible also says that human beings must choose and our choices really matter. All of them. Now I recognize how hard that is to understand. It's a mystery indeed, but we must resist the urge to try to make simple what the Bible makes complex. God is sovereign and our choices Still matter. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not an either or, but a both and. The simple fact of the matter is that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Let's hold those truths together. But here's the point. I don't want us to miss this. We got to ask ourselves, why not just what is happening? Why is it happening? Moses says very clearly that God speaks and says this, that you may know that I'm the Lord, that you may tell it it to your children and you may tell it to your grandchildren that I am the Lord. God is dragging this out. God is making sport with the Egyptians. He isn't obliterating Pharaoh in one fell swoop because listen, God is writing a story that is meant to form the Israelites and their children and their grandchildren into a certain type of people. Please hear that this morning. Listen, when I'm telling a story, right? It's like this. If you're, if you're, if you win one in the college football season, right? If you win one game by 50 points, that's great. That's pretty outstanding. Like, wow, they beat this team by 50 points right? It's probably an SEC team playing a Big Ten team. That's what happens, right? Now that happens, but listen. (laughs) But if you win every game, the whole season by 50 points, that tells a different story, right? That's not just a great game. That's outstanding. That's phenomenal. That literally will be told for generations to come, right? That's a bigger, badder, story. That's a story that grabs you more. This team was unbelievable. They dominated every single person they played all year long. Now that's what God's doing with all the gods of Egypt. He's lining them all up and just annihilating all of them to show how worthless and how powerless they are. All the gods of the earth compared to him. That's what God's doing. He's telling a story that's meant to capture people and shape them into a certain type of people. God is writing a story here that's meant to capture, listen to this, the imaginations, win the hearts, and shape the lives of his people forever, including us. Did you know this? Human beings all live their lives. Every human being, all, they all live their lives around or inside of some story. Story is what shapes us as humans. It's one of the things that makes us different from the animal kingdom, right? They don't sit around and tell stories. We do. The novelist David Foster Wallace said, we need narrative like we need space-time. It's a built-in thing. He's saying that, and this guy wasn't even a Christian, he's saying that human beings need a story. We need narrative to find sense in the world. Philosopher and theologian Jamie Smith says this, we are narrative animals whose very orientation to the world is fundamentally shaped by stories. Now this is unique because Hebrew culture, in many cultures, but Hebrew culture, when you wanted to teach a child something, you wanted to teach a person something, they, they come to you say, hey, what does it mean to be this? Or what does it mean to that? This is how Hebrew would say, well, let me tell you a story. See, they knew stories were meant to teach and the best way of learning was through narrative and through stories. Now this is, universally true. You can go to any culture in the world that has ever existed and they'll have a foundational story that tells them who they are, why they're here, what their purpose is, how they got here, what's the meaning of life, what's good, what's bad, what's evil, what's, you know, what things should be cherished. All of these things are shaped by a a culture or a narrative that people have. See stories, they get inside of us. They're almost like precognitive. They get into our heart. They get behind what we even believe and they shape what we love. They, they shape what we believe is worth fighting or working for. Stories teach us the kind of people we should be. I remember having this really good friend who we became my friend and, uh, and he was really loving and really kind. And he was a great friend. And I'd never experienced the type of friendship before that I had with him. And one day I just asked him, I said, man, how did you learn to be such a good friend? Like, I need help with being a friend. And, his, his, and I was expecting him to quote Bible to me. That's what I was supposed He's a Christian friend. I'm like, give me chapter and verse. And he goes, oh, I've read the Lord of the Rings every year for the last 20 years. And I was like, so you're a nerd. So what you're saying. No, no I love the Lord of the Rings. But what was he saying? <laughs> Two weeks in a row? I'm a sniper him. All right. So, what, now listen. What, what so The story of Lord of the Rings was written by a Christian. It's got Christianity drips through it. There's evil in it. There's darkness in it. There's brokenness in it. But foundationally, it's not just about good conquering evil, it's about friendship. Friendship when it's hard. Friendship that's self-sacrificing. Right? Friendship that really loves. Like, the hobbits make you nervous sometimes. They're so giddy and happy and love, Like, right? It's meant, the story is meant to shape you into a friend. That's what it's meant to do. And that's funny, I didn't even plan on talking about that this morning. But, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, who I am going to quote, and I already have quoted, they were best friends. And Tolkien led Lewis to the Lord, and they were great friends together. And this friendship is foundationally shaped by a story, a way of seeing the world. And it's funny, because when Lewis talked about reading The Lord of the Rings, he said, The Lord of the Rings, when I read it, it makes more sense of the world to me. I see giants and I see wicked things and I see evil. I see that in the world around me and it doesn't make sense. But when I read Lord of the Rings, it makes sense. And I know there's truth and I know there's goodness and I know there's love in the world. There's something about a story that made more sense of the world to him. See stories teach us what the world is like, what we're like, what we should love what kind of people we should be should we be brave should we be kind i'm just going to go off on a little rant right now i might as well why do i i don't know why i say that sorry harry potter is more well so, <laughs> losing everybody this morning listen let me say this harry potter is more christian than VeggieTales. VeggieTales promotes a moralistic universe. Be good and good things will happen to you. Harry Potter promotes a more real picture of the world. There is evil out there and and good must conquer it. And it's funny because if you get to the end of the book, what has it called? Self-sacrificial love defeats evil. Harry must give his life to defeat Evil. Well, where did that come from? That's Jesus, the story of the gospel. That's the real story that exists in our world. Phil Fisher, the guy who founded Veggie Tales, said that he felt that he literally he he, he repented and said that he was teaching moralism and not Christianity. See, stories tell us what does a well-lived life look like. By sending his plagues against Pharaoh, God was giving his people a story that answered all the big questions. Who am I? You are God's chosen people. Where did I come from? You came from Egypt. You were enslaved. You were in bondage, unable to free yourself under the heavy hand of a false god named Pharaoh. Is there a God? Absolutely. And his name is Yahweh, the great I am. He has rescued you and is rescuing you from slavery. Where am I going? You're headed to the promised land. What is the meaning of life to glorify God and enjoy him forever? You are literally built for glory and you're going to find freedom by being delivered from all the false gods that you're worshiping to, to worship the one and only God. And now you're going to live in this new community of people. You're going to be on my mission. You're going to show the world what I'm like. That's the meaning of life to the Israelites. See, that's what it means. Listen for us as well to live in God's story. In fact, that's the, that's the reason our gatherings are shaped the way that they are. We retell the Exodus every week. Our gatherings, our liturgy retells the story of God in a way that is meant to capture our hearts and point us back to the one true God in humility, independence, and hope for the future. Our gatherings are meant to tell a story that captures us and shapes us into a certain type of people who live in a certain type of way in our cities. We are rescued by God to be holy and a humble people who live for God's glory and the good of our neighbors. Now, listen, you might not understand that. Sometimes it's precognitive. You watch a kid, he watches Rocky. What does he do after he watches Rocky? He busts out the mirror, right? He's or he watches, you know, Rudy, right? He wa- he's out there practicing for six hours straight. It sh- did he think it was something like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch this movie and get really pumped up. It's precognitive. It gets behind it. Now listen, the gathering. What every Sunday we come in here and we're tired, we're frustrated. Money's tight. Our relationships, some of them are broken. Parenting is exhausting and difficult. We feel like we're not quite good enough. We've lived all week long like we were the center of the universe. And then we get into this gathering. And the first thing we're told is God is here. And he's calling you to worship him. Now, what's the difference? This isn't about you. This is about him. He's calling us to worship him. Then we're reminded right away, you're sinners. You've walked away from him. You've bailed on him. And we were, yeah, you know what? I did all week long. I did. I did. And then what? Then we're given the gospel. We're forgiven of our sins. We're reminded of a different story. We're reminded that we're sinners who've been rescued by a loving and sovereign God. And we profess our faith together. We hear the reading of God's word, we worship, we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of Jesus, we take in Jesus, and then we're sent back out on mission to the world. Our gatherings tell a story that's the anti-story to everything you hear all week long. All week long, you hear the story, it's about you, it's on you, success and failure is dependent upon you. You come into the gathering this morning, it ain't about you, it's about God, He's sovereign, even over the elections of men. Amen. But like all good stories, in this story and in the story of God, there's a villain. There's a person in this story who kind of embodies another story. An alternative narrative, a way to live your life That God wants to show to us, to show to the Israelites, to show to their children. He wants to put it on the screen and condemn it. A way of living, a narrative to believe. He wants to condemn. Because it doesn't lead to human flourishing. It leads to death and destruction, which is exactly where Pharaoh's going. Look at verse three. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Look at this. This is the first time he said this. This is what's unique about this chapter. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may serve me. God says to Pharaoh, you aren't letting my people go. You aren't obeying me because your heart is full of hubris. Now, that word, hubris, is a word that we don't use very much anymore. And I hope to bring it back. <laughs> the reason being is because hubris, so you see, we, when we use the word pride, pride can be used in kind of two ways in our society. You can say You know, you should be proud of the work you do. You should be proud of the life you live. And it's kind of this, we're using pride in a good sense. But hubris is a word that's an exaggerated pride. It's an exaggerated self-confidence. In its ancient Greek context, it described a human being's defiance of the gods. And that is exactly what Pharaoh is doing. He's showing an excessive pride and self-confidence by defying God. He's refusing to humble himself. Pharaoh says, hmm, he's been saying this over and over. Well, let's make a deal. Oh, you want to let your people go? I'll let them go only within the land. They can stay in the land. God says, no, I I'm not making a deal with you. Today, Pharaoh goes, oh, you want to let your, you know, how, you know, let my people go? Pharaoh's like, hmm, okay, I'll let the men go. Women, children, you guys stay here. Moses says, no. God says, no. Pharaoh goes, okay, fine. You can go. Leave your animals here. God says, no, we're taking everybody. They're all coming with us. Now, listen, this is what I want you to see. This is hubris. A man is arguing with God. Pharaoh speaks to God like they're equals. Now I want you to hold on. I think many of us would be like, I would never, I would ne- I wouldn't dare speak to God like I'm an equal. Let me me just unpack that just a little bit. How do you respond when you hear, thus says the Lord? How do you respond to the commands of Scripture when they cross what you want? Okay. Scripture says to be a generous giver, Starting at 10% of my income. Okay, let me do the math here. Okay. Ooh, that's the same amount as a payment on a boat. Ooh. How about I start with 2%, Lord? I think I could squeak 2% and the boat. How do you respond when someone says, Man, do you see how the way that you're living isn't in line with scripture? Do you tremble? Does it stop you in your tracks? Or do you negotiate? God doesn't care. Why would God care if I live in a missional community? Why would God care if I get to do this or that or the other thing with my girlfriend before we get married? Why would God care? There's starving people in Africa. Why would he care about this? This is, see, to you, whatever, if, if, If you come to an impasse, if you see something in scripture that says how you should live and what you should do, and you respond to it like, that's not a big deal. You're showing that whatever's going on in the heart of Pharaoh is also going on in your own heart. You're negotiating with, how, how could that be a big deal? What you're doing, this is what hubris does. See, hubris says, God obviously thinks like me. His opinions are obviously my own opinions. See, a heart, and how else do you see this? Look at this, this is Pharaoh. A heart that is filled with hubris is always looking down on people. They believe that their opinion is the right opinion. Oh Lord, Facebook, deliver us. They believe that their perspective, let me just say this. They believe that their perspective is the right perspective. Hubris says, I know, I know how, let me just do this. I know how this election should turn out. I know exactly the right candidate because I know all the things about everything. I know exactly how this person's going to vote, exactly how they're going to lead. I know exactly what's coming in the future. And if you don't elect my person... You hate our country, and you probably worship the devil. (laughs) Hubris. They, the heart that's full of hubris, they are the most important person in the room. And of course, when you're always looking down on people, you never see what's above you. And Pharaoh is so accustomed to looking down on everyone else that he doesn't see the glory and the grandeur of the true God that's above him. See, this is the great danger of hubris. Proverbs 16.5 says this, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. A man who will not bend the knee to the God of the universe will ultimately be broken. This is the root to all of Pharaoh's rebellion. And now listen, I hope it stops us in our tracks and we begin to think about this. Many of us, especially if you kind of grew up just in America, grew up in our culture, grew up in the church, the church is fascinated by fruit sins. Sexual immorality, greed, drunkenness, fascinated by root or fruit sins. And they're completely blind to the root of sin, which is hubris, pride. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. I wonder if we really believe that. I wonder if we as parents believe that in our children, that pride is the root of sin That we should be going after their pride in their heart rather than just trying to pick the fruit of the sin, keep them from going to jail, keep them from being addicts, keep them from whatever. Do we really think pride is the root? Hubris is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now, listen, this is what I'm gonna say that I want to put this in here. Hubris. Is a reversal of the story of God. It's the story of me. Hubris says. I am the center of my story. I'm the captain of my fate. I am the author. The actor and the director of the story of me. And it's a good story. Now what's interesting here. See, this is what the hubris heart does. This is what the story of me does. It's interesting to me that Pharaoh doesn't, he doesn't get bothered by the existence of God. He doesn't really care because in his worldview, and the story that he believes, everybody else in the world, including God, is just an extra in his story. Everyone else exists to serve his purpose. To help him tell his story and live his dream. See, who lives at the center of the anti-God story that ends in destruction? It isn't Satan. It's me. It's I. It's us. It's Pharaoh. Pharaoh is at the center of his story. It's a complete reversal of the story of God. I want you to think about it. this is what hubris does. Think about this. The, Jesus, the son of God who came into this world, when he said, this is what I want you to know. I'm going to dwindle all the law down to this, these two things. He says this, here is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. So this is what he's saying. The point of life is a heart pointed up in worship to God, loving God, and pointed out to your neighbor. That's the life. That's the good life. That's all the law wrapped up in two things, loving God, loving others. A story about up and out, a story about God and about others. But what does the story of me say? See, the story of hubris is this, love yourself. With all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, love yourself and only love others that can serve you, that make you feel good, that build up your little empire. Love others if they can serve you. Love others if they exalt you. Love others if they make you look good. And so we love to surround ourselves with people who make us feel good who think like we think and talk like we talk. We're like Pharaoh building a kingdom of me. I think Pharaoh would have completely agreed, would have sung along with the great American poet and entertainer, Megan Trainor, who sings, who's that sexy thing I see over there? That's me standing in the mirror. (laughs) What's that icy thing around my neck? That's gold. Show me some respect. I thank God every day that I woke up feeling this way. And I can't help loving myself. And I don't need nobody else. -uh. (laughs) Nuh-uh. If I was you, I'd want to be me too if I was you, I'd want to be me too. Now, I know that's silly, but that is the theme song of the story of me. The hubris heart says, if I was you, I'd want to be me too. Parents, single people, couples, visitors, This is where the real battle lies. It's in the narratives that we believe and we live out in the world. Hubris is not cute. It's not innocent. It's not a better way to live. It doesn't lead to human flourishing. It doesn't lead to happiness. In fact, do you know what hell is? Hell is a hubris heart times eternity. It's a self-focused, me-centered life multiplied by forever. This is why C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Lewis is very perceptive here. And he says, hell is for people who say, I don't want to humble myself. I don't want to be under the thumb of a God. I want to be God myself. I want my way. I'm all about me. And hell is that multiplied by eternity. Think about a place where everyone is trying to get everyone else to serve their needs no humility, no kindness, no gentleness, no love. That's hell. And it's in your heart. The seed of it. The seed of it, the hubris, it's in mine. It's like a little flame. It wants to be fed. And our culture tells us, that's how you parent kids, feed the flame of pride in their heart. Feed the flame of hubris, self-esteem. That's what they need. That's what they need. My kid does not need self-esteem. My kid thinks he's the smartest person on the planet. He likes to tell me that all the time. That doesn't make sense, dad. I'm like, because you don't understand it doesn't mean it don't make sense. This is what I want to see, see today. I think many of us, including myself, live like Pharaoh. We're living the story of me. And if you live like that, destruction is on its way. Now, I don't mean that to sound all hellfire and brimstone. In fact... Psychologists today will even tell you that the most unhappy people in the world are those who are always thinking about themselves. Like that destroys your own soul. This kingdom of self that we're trying to build. And I mean it like this. You aren't God. You aren't powerful enough to hold everything together right? Everything doesn't revolve around you. You can't keep everything in the gravitational pull around yourself. You can't hold it all together. Eventually, because you're not God, your story is going to come apart. And when that happens, you're going to be devastated. I think this is why suicide rates have went up so high in our day and age. We're the wealthiest country in the world. We're the most comfortable country in the world. Very few people truly go hungry in our culture these days. But suicide rates are up. Why? Because there's so much pressure on the self, on the kingdom of me. I must create my own existence and create my own world and hold all these relationships together and be really successful and really wealthy. It all depends on me. And when, we, when that fails us, when we let go and something goes off the handle and we, ha- we, we hit financial ruin or we lose a relationship or our family falls apart or somehow we get diagnosed with cancer and we realize I've been living a lie or there's something wrong with me. I'm just not good enough to hold everything together. We contemplate the end. We contemplate ending it all. We're devastated. Why? Because we've been living the story of me like the world revolves around us. And Jesus promises, God promises, destruction comes for the hubris heart. The story that lives, the story of me, it's end, it end is in destruction, always. The hubris heart leads us towards destruction. See, and, and think about this, just we know that we're headed to a, Eventually, Scripture tells us in our story that we're headed to a judgment. We're going to stand before a righteous and holy God and is yourself going to be there to save you? Are you going to say to him, well, I did it my way. Your self can't save you before a righteous and holy God. And so what is God doing to Pharaoh here? He's trying to knock out every crutch He's trying to destroy every God and to show him yourself cannot save you. Your false gods cannot save you. That's exactly what it does. I'm just going to read through this real quick. It was another humiliation for Egypt's false gods. The e- Egypt's worshiped men, the patron of the crops, Nepri, the god of grain, Anubis, the guardian of the fields, and Sinehem, the divine protector against pests. They depended on all these gods to preserve their food supply. And here we go. God just knocks them out one by one. And now all their green fields are eaten up by locusts. And all their gods have completely failed them. But Pharaoh, once again, hardens his heart. And God hardens his heart. See this hubris in Pharaoh's heart. Think about this, guys. Pharaoh claimed to be the son of all the gods. And all the people looked at him and Pharaoh would say this. I can hold it all together. I can keep the kingdom at peace. I can create prosperity. I can create your best life now. I can create it. Just look to me. I've, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Pharaoh would say, hey, come here, look. Look to me. I can make Egypt great again. Right? That's what Pharaoh, that's Pharaoh's message. And what's 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 reality? He's completely failed as a leader. He can't keep it together. He can't protect the pests. He can't protect the field. He can't protect anything because he's not God. And then look at the last, excuse me, the last plague here. Verse 21, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness to be felt. It's as if God is filling the entire atmosphere with the contents of Pharaoh's heart. A darkness so complete that you can feel it. God is projecting the contents of a hubris filled heart into the sky for all the world to see or to feel or to not see and for 3 days they're all in darkness now this is freaky like most egyptians pharaoh was a sun worshipper more than that he was regarded of as the son of ray the personal embodiment of the solar deity if you ever watch you know, all, any old Egyptian movies, even the fun ones like The Mummy, the Pharaoh is always worshiping Re, worshiping the sun god. Egypt's king was Egypt's god, and as an incarnation of amun Re, he maintained the cosmic order, and God shut the lights out on Re. The God of Egypt. Now why should we care? As I close this morning, why should we care? What's going on in Pharaoh? What's the the big deal? Obviously, I don't resist God like that. I wouldn't stand against God like that. Well, if you understand the story of God, you understand that Pharaoh's heart is actually just... It's as if you put the heart... If you could project the contents of Pharaoh's heart onto these screens this morning it's projecting the heart of every single human being apart from the intervening grace of God. When I look at Pharaoh and I go, what an idiot! I'm condemning myself. How many times have I resisted God's will? How many times have I tried to sneak my way out of one of his commandments? How many times have I doubted him? How many times have I said, no more, I'll never do it again. And I did it again. The unconverted heart is full of hubris. And listen to this. So why? What's the big deal? James, the brother of Jesus, tells us that God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Opposes. Opposite team. Those with a hubris heart, God is at war. God is an enemy to us but God gives grace to the humble. So here's the great question. How can a hubris-filled heart that's just living out the story of me, how can that heart be humbled? How can that person enter into this and live the story of God and not just the story of me? (coughs) Excuse me. How can a person totally set on getting what they want, success, power, fame, comfort, whatever it is, ever turn from that and instead desire humility, desire God's will and not their own? That's the question. That's the question about religion. That's the question of Christianity. Now I'm going to ask you that. How can that happen? Now I think I know what most of you think. Well, you, you need to change. You, you need, you're, you're bad and, and now you need, you need to be good. You were doing bad things, now you need to begin to do good things. You have a bad heart, have a good heart. But that is the promise and the hope and the message of religion and not Christianity, not the gospel. Exodus is teaching us here. That, that way of living will only drive you deeper and deeper and deeper into pride, into a hubris filled heart. See, if I think I need to be good and I need to obey the rules and then I'll be accepted. Then when I do that and I obey the rules and I'm, and I feel accepted, what do I do? I look down on those who can't obey the rules who don't follow the instructions, who live in a different way from me. I look, what is that? I'm looking down. I'm right back into the position of Pharaoh. But now I'm ruling over this little religious kingdom. See, but Exodus is teaching us. You need more than morals. The order of Exodus is important here. We're going to spend several weeks on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are coming. But guess what happens before the Ten Commandments? Redemption. You need more than morals. You need more than hard work. You need more than religion. You need to be rescued. We cannot free ourselves from this hubris-filled heart that is set on itself. We need someone else to free us from the outside in. We don't, we're not kind of treading water and we need somebody to throw us a lifeline and we're going to grab a hold of that lifeline and then we're going to swim into shore. That's not the reality of the hubris filled heart. Let, let me, let's go somewhere. Let's go to, if you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians 2. All right, here it is, right here. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, on whom, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature, look, children of wrath opposed to God, like the rest of mankind, like the rest of mankind. But look at this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, because of what? His great love with which he loved us, not because of anything good in ourselves, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace (coughs) you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not of the results of works so that no one May boast. Please hear me. The hubris filled heart is a walking dead person. They are spiritually dead. Now I want you to, I want you to hear this. Let's put these things together. What good is a life preserver for a person dead at the bottom of the lake? What good are the 10 commandments to a dead person on a table? All right. All you got to do to have this new heart is obey God. Here's the 10 commandments. Dead on the table. God's just waiting for you to do it. Or even here's what you got to do. Dead person on the table. Just believe. Here believe. No. What does this person need?. Salvation, rescue from the outside end. They're dead. They need a new heart. They need life from the outside in. This is what God has done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has lived the perfect life that none of us live, obeyed the law perfectly. And God died on the cross in our place for our sins so that at the moment of his death, he purchased in his resurrection. He purchased forever. Every single person that was elect, every single person that would ever believe, God saved in that moment. And he regenerated their hearts and they come alive. And what is, it, what, is it, what happens then? You come alive and you choose Jesus. You come alive and you put your faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ we're dead we're in darkness and god shines his light on jesus and god brings us to life in christ and it's not about works that anyone can boast it's about the grace of god now when you see that, this is the gospel. I love that you're going to see here as we're studying Exodus that the Israelites are not awesome. We don't really know anything about them yet because right now we're kind of just seeing that their identity is sufferer. But pretty soon we're going to realize that they're not just sufferers, they're also sinners that God's rescuing them without any of their own help. They're not putting any time. They're not working for it. God's rescuing them. But as soon as they get freed and they start wandering, oh man, you're going to start seeing their identity as sinners come out. And for those of you in this room, I hope that you, that God is kind of shining in your eyes today, shining in your heart and you can see Jesus and you can put your faith in Jesus for the first time. But for those who are religious in this room, those who have chosen Christ many years ago, I hope you see that your, your journey's not over. And I hope you see that the same hope for the lost in the gospel is your hope as well. That we need to believe the gospel every day to walk with God through this life. And what is it going to do for us if you do that? When you truly understand the gospel and it gets down into your heart, it changes the story that you live. It truly humbles you. You a person who understands the gospel could never say, if I was you, I'd want to be me too. Do you realize if you see yourself clearly, you wouldn't want anybody to be you. The apostle Paul lived in darkness Hardened heart, kingdom of me. God knocked him off his horse, sovereignly saved him. Super sanctification. This guy was arguably outside of Jesus. Uh, I'm just going to say it like this. It's probably not accurate. but We would read it like this. The best Christian to ever live. Planting churches all over the place, getting beaten, stand up, quoting scripture back to people, healing the sick. Right, doing phenomenal stuff. And then his last, one of his last letters that he ever wrote to his protege, as he's wanting to give him his parting words, like to be faithful in the ministry. This is what Paul says. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. a person who understands the gospel sees that their sin, their sin is the wickedest sin they've ever seen. They're the problem. What's wrong with the world? As G.K. Chesterton once responded, I am. The apostle Paul, sanctified, about to see Jesus in glory, about to be killed, killed, He says, of whom I am the foremost. The gospel of Jesus Christ, when it's truly believed, flips the story of me on its head, reorients us around the story of God, and humbles our hubris-filled heart, where we can see that we are, listen, worse than we ever thought possible but simultaneously more loved than we've ever dreamed. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can humble us and give us the boldness at the same time. Humble us, we're worse than we ever thought. Boldness, but I'm so loved by Jesus. Only the gospel has what our culture needs, has what we need. It's only in Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd believe that with me this morning. Let me pray. Father, everything, nearly everything we read, nearly everything we see, nearly everything we hear in our culture tells the story of me. You can do it. Success and failure depends on you. This is how to vote right. This is how to do right. Everything's about us. And we believe that false gospel six days a week. And yet we come in here this morning and we're confronted with the true story the story of the whole universe, the story of the God of the universe who created us. And we've rebelled from you, and yet you pursued sinners. You soften our hearts. You give us the sight of Jesus on the cross dying in our place for our sins and it miraculously softens our heart and we say not my will but your will be done. Father, would you do that in this moment? Would you do that today? How could we ever say no to you? With our eyes on the cross, what you gave for us, what you did for us, how could we ever say no? How could we ever treat your commandments like they're mean or cruel or taking something away from us? Help us. And that's why we come this morning to the table and we open our hands and you never leave us empty-handed. You put your body and the blood of your son in our hands and in our mouth and upon our palate and into our stomach and into our body and Jesus literally goes with us. Father, we thank you for the work you've done in your son. Help us believe it. Help us believe the story and live like it's true. Shape our lives around the shape of the cross. I pray that you would do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.